A reading today is from Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. So this is, uh, this is James. A lot of you will know James if you've been part of the church for a number of years. James has been around since he was... Very small. <laughs> How small is very small? <laughs> Two. I Two. Think. Wow. Now he's three. Amazing. <laughs> so James One is part on. of the youth group that I ran many, many years ago. And it's, um, again, another real privilege to see you Thanks. growing in your faith and to be able to share what God's put on your heart today. A really easy subject, the unforgivable sin. Yes. So um, James's choice, by the way, I didn't give that to him, but he wanted to tackle this. A little this. bit scary. <laughs> but church, don't be worried. It's all good. All right. It's, don't worry. It's a good it's start. It's a okay. positive thing. So I want to pray for James. Is that okay? And then uh, we'll hear from the word. Lord God, I just thank you for my brother in Christ, James. Lord, I thank you for his heart for you, for his incredible love for you, his serving nature Lord, that is evident in all that he does. Lord, I just pray for him now. You just anoint him with your spirit. Well, thank you for the words that you've prepared through him. Lord, and may we as a church, as individuals, and as a collective, may we have hearts that are open to your word this morning. It's a double-edged sword. It cuts right to the bone and the marrow. Lord, just pray that your word speaks to us this morning. We don't resist it. We don't create obstacles for it. Father, we're just an open heart to your word. Jesus, we just pray this in your name. Amen. Good morning, church. You all doing okay? Good to hear. Um, Thank you very much, Bruce, for reading. Thank you, Jim, for inviting me to speak this morning. Um, Yeah, so if you, uh, as Jim said, I'm James. I've been here since I was very young. I've been a member here now for a couple of years. Um, And it's it's honestly such a privilege to to be able to speak this morning. Um, I I remember when I um, kind of joined the youth group and um, and started going to some of the retreats. And I remember very clearly my very first retreat, um, me and some of the the lads in my dorm. uh, We were up a lot later than we should have been. um, But we went into one of the other rooms and we we started opening our Bibles and and reading um, some scripture. And I so clearly remember this phenomenal moment where the the sense of the Holy Spirit being present was undeniable. And that night left a permanent imprint on me where I knew that the Holy Spirit was working um, through through Scripture to to speak to me. I can't remember exactly what was being said, but I just remember a permanent imprint that was left on me that night. And um, since then, or or after that, I asked to be baptised and in a sense you could say the rest was history. I made a public declaration of faith and I promise to follow Jesus the rest of my life. And my growth in relationship with scripture has been um, difficult but really, really interesting. And I've, I've grown to absolutely love the Bible, even though it is a really, really difficult book to understand. And 
Um, I, I, I was blessed with two short months uh, at Bible college, only two months. It was really just a taster of, of getting to know what it's like to study scripture a little bit more in depth. Um, but it really helped me to appreciate the significance of God's word. And I believe that the Bible is a beautiful and united book that tells one story, a single narrative that points all to Jesus. And I remember um, a few weeks ago when Claire was speaking, she talked about this idea that the Bible is just this single one narrative. And when you read the Bible, cover to cover and you start delving into it, it becomes so clear that this is one story. Even though it was written by 40 authors, even though it was written over 1,500 years, it was one story. So the problem is it's hard to understand. It's not simple. It takes perseverance. Like the rest of the Christian life, studying the Bible takes a lot of perseverance. One of the things that we love to do, particularly when we first come to faith, is we love to divide up the Old Testament and the New Testament. Where we say, "What right, the Old Testament is, it was, was for them then, and the New Testament is for us now. We make this divide and we say that they're not connected, or that they're, they're less connected than we'd, we'd, um, than we'd like to admit. There are things in the Old Testament that make us really squirm inside with discomfort, almost make you cringe when you read them. And I mean, I've been having that recently. I've been going through some of the passages in Kings, and I'm thinking, this makes me squirm inside. And so it takes perseverance to understand what God is doing through them, and it takes perseverance to understand that in it all, God is still good. And this is a passage, thank you Bruce for reading, this is a passage in the New Testament that kind of makes us squirm a little bit makes us a little bit uncomfortable because it talks about this word. It talks about sin. Anyway, we're going to get onto that a little bit. But before I go any further, I want to make it absolutely clear that the grace of God, which is something that we love talking about, is wonderful. But the grace of God makes no sense unless you understand how fundamentally broken we are inside. Unless we understand our rejection of Christ, the grace of God to save us, makes no sense. We are going to get to talking about the grace of God today, so don't worry about it. So yeah, this is a difficult passage, but I chose to speak on it because I've never heard a sermon on it. And I think it's really important to try and understand these passages that people might be too scared to actually preach on. And so I decided to do it because we've not heard a sermon. I've never heard a sermon on it before. It's also a great example of where you can find answers to some really tough questions. And that is one of the things I've been learning about scripture is that if you're willing to persevere, there are genuine and true answers in it, but it takes perseverance. There are solid answers in scripture. Admittedly, there are also some things that you're not going to get answers to. Paul describes the will of God as a mystery. And so there are some things that you might just never get your answers to. And it takes a bit of humility to recognize that. But this, I believe, is something that there are solid answers to. Right, so we're going to look a little bit um, deeper into the passage. Personally, I quite enjoy um, studying scripture. Um, So I just want to start with a little bit of context before we get into the actual passage, which is Mark 3. If you have a Bible, whether it be on your phone or a physical Bible, I'd really encourage you to be kind of following along with this. Um, Feel free to take notes as well, if you'd like. 
We start, um, context-wise, we start with Mark 1, where we have this driving out a demon. I'm not going to read all of these. I think that would be unnecessary. Um, but I just want to show that the ministry of Jesus is ramping up in the beginning of Mark. Mark's very quick. Bam, bam, bam. He gets on one thing to the next to the next. And he's ramping up the ministry of Jesus. So here we have that he's driving out an impure spirit. Come out of him. This impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. That's the first one. Let's get on to the next one. Fantastic. So um, this is uh, Simon's mother-in-law. This is a healing. Again, the ministry of Jesus is ramping up. Um, he takes Simon's mother-in-law. He took her hand, helped her up, and the fever left, him, uh, left her. The next one is um, just a more of a general one about driving out many demons. That's kind of what our passage in Mark 3 is about. And then if we get on to the next one, uh, we've got a leper. So a leper comes and falls before Jesus and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, what I love about this is that the leper understands who Jesus is. He says, if you are willing, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Immediately, um, or Jesus said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. So that is some of the healings that are ramping up the ministry of Jesus. But not only is the ministry of Jesus ramping up, but his opposition is ramping up as well. So let's have some of the opposition. And the first one we've got is a paralyzed man, which is a very, very well-known story. Most of you will have heard this before. Um, this man um, wasn't able to access Jesus. He, he, his friends had faith that he could be healed. So they took him up to the roof. They lowered him through the roof. And instead of healing him, Jesus said, your sons are forgiven. So, sorry, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the teachers of the, uh, the law at the time then starts to question it. Who can forgive sins except God alone? I think that's a really, really important question. Who can forgive sins except God alone? If they're right and that only God can forgive sins, then what does that tell us about Jesus? He then goes on to heal the man to prove that he has authority to forgive sins. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So he says to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Some more um, scrutiny that he faces, if you go on to the next slide. Um, some fasting, how is it that the John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours aren't? And he responds, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is still with them? While he is still with them, they cannot, so long as the bridegroom is with them. And then if we go on to the next one, we've got some about the, the Sabbath. And it's not just this one. There's one about healing on the Sabbath. So all the, um, the, um, the disciples, they're going through and picking grains of corn. And the Pharisees are not happy about this. And so we see that Jesus is facing a huge amount of scrutiny. But alongside that, his ministry is getting more and more powerful. And that brings us to the passage that we've got today. All of these passages starting to set the stage for what is about to happen. Jesus faces accusation from the Pharisees. They find out that Jesus has gone to this house and that he's teaching. And the Pharisees say, quick, grab your things. Let's go and get him. We've catch him before he disappears. Surely the only way that he could possibly be doing these miracles is if he was possessed by the devil himself. Jesus' response is firstly logical. He responds with this kind of logical argument. If we look at um, verses um, towards the end of chapter 3. Um, a divided kingdom cannot stand. So he starts to speak to them in parables. A divided kingdom cannot stand. A divided house cannot stand. And a divided Satan cannot stand. 
Essentially, these are three parables that are different ways of saying the same thing. We'll get on to the fourth parable in the moment. Here we go, yeah. How can Satan drive out Satan? He's saying it's logically ridiculous. What you've suggested makes no sense. If my ministry was by the prince of demons or by the devil, then it would have crashed and burned already because I'm driving out demons. So what you're saying, Pharisees, is logically ridiculous. And then the fourth parable, the fourth parable gives us a little bit more information. Only by binding the strong man, that is Satan, the strong man is Satan, I think it's important to recognize that Satan does have strength, and sometimes that's scary to admit, but that Satan does have strength, Luckily, Jesus has come to bind Satan. Only by binding the strong man can someone plunder his house, or in this case, drive out those demons. Jesus is claiming not just to have authority to drive out demons, but having authority to bind Satan. And then it's almost as if he turns to the crowds after that. He's been speaking and kind of having this back and forth with the Pharisees. And then he turns to the crowds and does this teaching. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. The children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Let's pause there just for a moment and recognize the depth of what Jesus has just said. All sins will be forgiven. The children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Thank you, Judith, for coming and sharing what you shared this morning, because that links in so clearly with with what Jesus has taught here, that if you are feeling shame, if you are feeling the depth of your past sin, Jesus is saying here, all sins can be forgiven the children of man. There is so much delight in that, that your sins can be forgiven. And we spoke so much about freedom during worship this morning, that it brings freedom to know that. But then he goes on, and there's this one single exception that Jesus says, but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And so my immediate question is, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What on earth does he mean by that? And it doesn't translate well into English. We're trying to understand, like, it just doesn't really make sense. It seems, it seems, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. But Mark, the reason I chose the Mark passage on this, and there's a, a Matthew, Mark, and a Luke passage, the reason I chose um, the Mark passage is because Mark gives us a little bit of help in verse 30. So if you look down to verse 30, Mark says, He, referring to Jesus, he said this, he gave this teaching, because they, the Pharisees, were saying he has an impure spirit. So he, he has responded to what the Pharisees have said with this teaching. So even if this phrase doesn't make sense, it's absolutely clear that there is a direct link between what Jesus has taught about, um, about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and what the Pharisees have accused Jesus of. And I don't know if Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of this sin or if he is just trying to warn them that they're dangerously close. Authority at that time was wrapped up in your identity. And the Pharisees have attacked Jesus' authority to be able to drive out demons. And therefore, they have attacked his identity. And so somehow, they are almost in error of this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I'm going to detour a little bit away from that. We're going to come back to it in a moment. But I want to talk now about questions. 
I've been asking kind of quite a few questions to do with kind of the identity of Jesus. Um, and, and there are all sorts of really great, great questions that this passage brings out and great questions that we have about the Bible. When I was younger and um, I was going to school, uh, often I'd come home from school and the first thing my dad would say to me is, have you asked a good question today? Because that was his definition of me having learnt something, is whether I had asked a good question. Not necessarily having the answer, but had I asked a good question. And Jesus loves questions. So often the Pharisees say something or accuse him of something, and Jesus responds with a question. Not because he doesn't know the answer to the question, but because he's trying to provoke a question. He's trying to provoke them to be asking the right questions. And so this morning, I want to um, move us away from asking the wrong questions. One example might be, have I committed this sin? I don't think that's the right question to be asking. And start asking the right questions. So I have four questions that I'd like to ask you this morning and for all of you to kind of think about. It might be that you, we try and answer them here a little bit, but continue to think about these four questions as we ask them. Good question number one. Why do we worship God? Why do we worship God? One of my first retreats, um, I remember a very clear talk by Haley Robson, um, now Haley Marchant. She was um, preaching a few weeks ago, and um, she asked this question of us: Why do we worship God? And I was thinking, Well, He died on the cross for me. He created me. He loves me. And these things are all true. But the point of what she was saying is that even if none of these things were true, God would actually still be worthy of worship. How does that work? Because we worship him because of fundamentally who he is. There is an intrinsic identity in God that makes him worthy of worship. That is beyond the scope of what he's done for us and is all about who he is. Another reason that we worship God is because all of creation worships God. And we are the pinnacle of that creation. The Bible says that, or um, there, was a, there was a point in which people were giving praise to Jesus and the Pharisees question it, they're unhappy with it, and say, aren't you going to rebuke these people? And Jesus says, no. If, if, if they don't cry out my praise, if they are silent, then the stones are going to cry out. All of creation is groaning in wait for Jesus to return. All of creation is giving praise to God because of who he fundamentally is. Is, uh, uh, he is glorious. He is worthy. And on top of that, the things he's done for us, he's so worthy of our worship. So those are some of the reasons that we um, worship God. That's good question number one. Good question number two. And we're, we're leading up to talking about um, uh, more of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But good question number two. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? I think unless we can understand what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, then we can't understand what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And the first thing we might start to think of is the fruits of the Spirit, or the gifts of the Spirit. Healing, tongues, prophecy, um, understanding and wisdom. Now those things are all great, and there are ministries of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to downplay that, but I would like to suggest to you this morning that the primary um, ministries of the Holy Spirit, when you first become a Christian, is one to reveal who Jesus is to you and two, to reveal your desperate need for him and to convict you how much you need Jesus. I believe that those are the fundamental primary ministries of the Holy Spirit. And then in that moment when Jesus is revealed to you, you realize how glorious and holy he is. 
So that's good question number two. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Good question number three. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I think so much of the Bible is focused on trying to explain this question. I don't think there is a more important question that you can ask in your life than who is Jesus. And the more I read the Gospels, the more I read the Gospel of Mark, which we've been doing today, the more I understand it to be pointing to this question and pointing to this answer. In this passage, Jesus is provoking such an important question. Who am I? Who is this man who heals the sick? Who is this man who has authority over nature to calm the seas, to stop the wind? Who is this man who is able to feed 5,000, 4,000 people at a time with a lunchbox? Who is this man who loves the outcasts better than you or I ever could? Who is this man who died and then had the power to rise from the dead? Who is this man who has authority to forgive sins? Who is Jesus? And the whole of the Bible is pointing to this fundamental question. I'm going to read a passage from Colossians 1. Paul describes Jesus as entirely equal to God. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation, for in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, things visible and invisible. Thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, that is the church. He is the beginning, he is the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood which was shed on the cross. I love the passage as well where um, um, Jesus says to Peter, who do people say I am? And Peter says, uh, some say Elijah, some say um, um, this, some say that. And then Jesus says to him, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Who do you say I am? And I do not believe that there is a more important question that you can ask in your life. And we're going to get to now to good question uh, number four. What then is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Bearing all this in mind, what then is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? There is um, so much content out there to help us understanding the Bible, understanding God's word. And I really encourage you, if you're able, to start spending a little bit of time. If you have a difficult question about a difficult passage, look up some commentaries. I was using the Enduring Word commentary to kind of help me understand this passage, and I think it puts it really beautifully. It says, we understand what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is by first understanding what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. Regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, when he has come, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, and of righteousness, and of judgment. These are parts of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. And that he will testify of me. The Holy Spirit will testify to who Jesus is. Therefore, when we persistently reject the work of the Holy Spirit, and what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us, when we have a continued and settled rejection of what the Holy Spirit is telling us about who Jesus is, then we blaspheme the Holy Spirit. 
And this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not unforgivable because it is a too big sin for God to forgive. We've already seen Jesus say all sins can be forgiven the children of man. It's not because it's too big for God to forgive, but it is because it is an attitude of heart that cares nothing for God's forgiveness. It is an attitude of heart that cares nothing for God's forgiveness. It never has forgiveness because it never wants forgiveness. So we see this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it's a firm and a persistent rejection of what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us about Jesus, namely that he is God. And therefore, if Jesus is God, he has authority on earth to forgive all sins, but he will not forgive your sin if you don't want that forgiveness, if you have no care or an interest in that forgiveness. This morning I want to address a few different groups of people um, and encourage you to respond. Um, I don't necessarily want you to respond the exact way that I suggest. These are just some thoughts. Um, but yeah, there's, there's three different groups that I'd like to um, uh, address. And the first group is the tired Christian, the person who has come here this morning and you've kind of been on a Christian treadmill for a long time, you come to church on a Sunday, maybe you do your tithes, maybe you go to life group on a, on a, on a whatever day of the week, um, but you're just tired. Let's be honest, the Christian life is exhausting. Jesus promises opposition. The Bible promises that when you become a Christian, you're going to face opposition. And not just opposition from the world, but opposition from the devil as well. And so you do, when you become a Christian, face opposition. And so it's exhausting. It's a marathon. It's harder than a marathon. If anyone's done a marathon in here, you know that it's the training that is involved that is such a hard thing. It's not just the however many hours that you spend doing it. There is so much training involved. And so being a Christian is exhausting. And hard. Maybe, maybe that has started to lead you into being lukewarm, dare I say it. And this is a warning here. This is a warning that actually um, we need to be persistent in living a life that is transformed by the Holy Spirit. We need to live, we need to be persistent in living in communion constantly with the Holy Spirit. It's not about ticking all these different boxes. It's not about doing that at all, but it is about living a life that is transformed by the Holy Spirit in relationship with Christ. John 3, 3 says, I tell you, no one, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. So if that's you this morning, I really want to encourage you to spend some moments after this, um, maybe during communion or after communion, spend some time rediscovering what a life transformed by the Holy Spirit might look like. Acts is a really great book to find out what a life transformed by the Holy Spirit looks like. So maybe spend some time reading that. Commit today to let go of any of the tick boxing that you've been doing and just persistently pursue Christ. That might mean reading a Christian book on your shelf. It might mean spending 10 minutes a day praying. It might mean committing to weekly fellowship. But it's not about ticking boxes. It's not about those things. Those are just practical ways of doing it. So however the Holy Spirit has led you in the past or now to try and live in persistent relationship with him, spend some time discovering what that looks like in your life. And spend some time looking back on the ways that the Holy Spirit has already transformed your life. I've been amazed recently looking at the Old Testament. The amount of times that God says, remember what I did. 
with your ancestors. And remember, these are people who, these Israelites that Jesus is talking to, are not people who remember any of these things in their life. These are my ancestors. They're so disconnected from me. How am I supposed to remember the parting of the Red Sea when it didn't happen in my life? And God says, remember. Remember what I did. Remember what I did. And so maybe this morning is about remembering what Jesus did on the cross, even though it's not in your physical memory. It's written down here in the word. So remember what he did. And remember what he's done in your life. Think back to those imprint moments, those moments where the Holy Spirit has left a permanent imprint on your life. And be encouraged that God is 100% with you and he has given you a Holy Spirit to be able to persistently pursue Christ. That is the tired Christian. The next group is uh, the, the Christian who just feels so much shame right now that they're just unable to think about all these things that I've talked about. You might feel so deeply entrenched in sin that you struggle to see how God's forgiveness can be for you. And you might start asking this question, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? As I said before, it's not the right question to be asking. If you're here this morning and you're listening to this, you've not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. It's not the right question to be asking. Who is Jesus? Am I willing to say, Lord, my Lord? That's the right question. Who is Jesus? Jesus made it so clear that forgiveness is on offer for every single person here in this room, in the North Building, watching online. Forgiveness is on offer to every single person on earth. So please take time as we spend time in communion to take up that offer once again. I feel like I have to take that offer up every single day. Rediscover the freedom that living a life transformed by the Holy Spirit brings and then commit Commit to living in constant communion with the Holy Spirit. Pray unceasingly. That doesn't mean that you're constantly mumbling to yourself. It means a life that is led and transformed by the Holy Spirit. And the last group of people um, who might be here, who might be listening online, who might be in the North Building, is those that have not decided yet to follow Jesus. Those that would not consider themselves Christians. You might have heard all of this a hundred times over. It might be the first time this morning that you have heard the message, this message. But you have now listened and heard the good news about the forgiveness that Christ offers. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is decision time. Because every single one of us comes to a point in our life when we have to make a decision about who Jesus is. And if that's you... I'd like to encourage you to stick around and and chat with me at the end. I'd really like to chat about that. And I'm going to stick around. But for now, I'm just going to share the simple gospel. And you might feel like we've shared this lots at this church. But the gospel is the thing that we come to when we first become a Christian and we come back daily when we try and persistently live as Christians. Because that is what it all comes under. It comes under this simple gospel. And it goes like this. God created all things, and we are the pinnacle of his creation. This God of the Bible created all things, and we are the epitome of that creation. And through it, he deeply loves us all. Out of that love, he created all things. But we rejected God. This is what I was saying about sin at the start. You cannot understand God's grace unless you understand how fundamentally rejected from God you are, or how much you have fundamentally rejected God. And that's me as well. That's every single one of us. When you put yourself next to Jesus and you realize his holiness, you realize that you have rejected God. 
that you do not stand up to the same standards that Jesus lived by. We continue to reject God through our thoughts, words, and actions. But Jesus, it was God had a rescue plan and sent his son Jesus to bear the cost of those sins, the severe cost of our sins on his own shoulders by being crucified on the cross. In doing so, he made a way for there to be forgiveness. Truly, I tell you, all sins can be forgiven the children of man. But not only did he stay dead, sorry, yeah, not only did he stay dead, he rose from the dead. And in doing so, made a way for every single one of us to receive eternal life. Choosing to follow Jesus, though, and this is the cost. Choosing to follow Jesus means laying down all the other worldly things that you might worship. And choosing to worship him only. That is the simple gospel. 